Almighty Heavenly Father, we praise you that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression of your magnificent and infinite mercy, mercy as he died in our place on the cross of Calvary. We thank you for this day of life. Thank you that in your providential care that you have planned this day, that you know exactly what it holds, that you have brought us together in time and space to meet here, to worship you, to exalt your name, and to dig into the teaching of your word. We pray, Lord, today that your Holy Spirit would teach us, guide us, and transform us because of this time that we spend together. For if your Holy Spirit would not show up, we would be wasting our time. And we thank you, Lord, for the fact that you are at work in each one of our lives and that you will not be thwarted in that process. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom we enjoy to meet in this campus. We thank you for our children, for those who care for our children. We thank you, Lord, for our guests who are with us today. Thank you for each one here. And, Lord, as Grace Point Church, may we grow together in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and that our lives would be changed because we are here today. And, Lord, we pray for those who are traveling or ill and cannot make it here today. We pray that each one would see your blessings as they spend their day today. And for all of us, that we'd be attentive to the things you have for us, that you would teach us, that we would go away into our world uh, and be transformation agents for your glory and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word today. It's in our own language. We praise you and thank you for making that possible. We are humbled by that. And we pray for our government, for those in leadership. We pray, Lord, for our military men and women around the world. And we pray especially for believers in both of those endeavors, that they would have a strong testimony of your grace. And, Lord, that we would be a people who are gentle and winsome. And, Lord, that we would share the love of the Lord Jesus Christ with others. We thank you for your word this morning. Now teach us today, we pray. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. I was reading this week that uh, the company Google, one of the things they've done is they've digitized over 30 million unique books dating back to the 1800s. And by digitizing those books, they can search them with supercomputers and probably the computer that you have at home or maybe even on your phone. And uh, you can find whatever you want to find in those publications over the last 150 years, 200 years. And what it has done by digitizing all of those uh, literature, pieces of literature and books, it has created uh, a new field of qualitative cultural studies and it's called culture-omics, culture-omics. Let me explain that. It's a method to track changes in word use through time, a change in differences of how we use words through the last 200 years, especially as they are published. It allows us the unusual look at people who've gone before us and in our current day to tell us what is important to them. For instance, the phrase ice cream took off in published works in the 1910s. Why was that? Because General Electric introduced the powered home ice box. And so in those publications, the phrase ice cream showed up. The word pasta nosedived and fell out of favor in the 1990s. Why was that? Because of the carb-free diets that swept popular culture. And of course, pasta was a no-no, right? And so that uh, tells us a little bit about the trends within our culture. Well, it also reveals what is deeply important to us. 
The writers of this study who took part in it says that the data shows that with each passing year, we're getting more and more wrapped up in the present, not the future, not the past, but what the present. And so they asked the question, how about the word God, G-O-D, not necessarily the biblical God or just the word God? How does it show up in literature? And they, they, their report is, is, as we've studied this, the word has been in steady decline for decades and is now used only about a third as, the much, as much in American writing as it was in the early 1800s. So there's a dis, dis, diminishment of even referring to a divine being in literature today than there was 200 years ago. Uh, Eugene Peterson says that we know that the atmosphere in which we live erodes faith, dissipates hope, and corrupts love, but it is hard to identify just what is wrong. And, of course, it sweeps through all of culture, through politics, through popular culture. And we introduced this series last week talking about this fact that we live in an alien environment because we are strangers and aliens, as the Apostle Peter described us and as we are described throughout Scripture. We are on a journey as believers in Jesus Christ that this is not all there is in this present world. In fact, we are becoming our atmosphere, our culture, the world we live in is becoming increasingly secular, and I know that is no surprise to you, and is becoming less providential. In other words, there is not a higher being, the culture would tell us. There is not an ultimate authority. We are our own authorities, and we move in this world, and we see it across all areas of expertise and areas of training. We see it again and again. And so it's increasingly secular. And so how do we as Christians live in this time? And we have been starting, we started this series last week on the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134. And today we're going to look at Psalm 120. It was read for us today. If you take your copy of Scripture and turn to the Psalms and find Psalm 120. And, you know, since we are a people, we are submerged in our culture. And sometimes we're like a fish in a polluted stream. We can't identify the pollution itself. We just know something is wrong. And so that is something of the way we live in this culture. We live in a culture swarming with lies and malice and slander, and uh, we're drowning in a morass of impurity. And we as believers are called to be different because we are on a different journey than the world is on. We are conditioned uh, by our exposure and our experience to trust nothing we hear or very little that we hear and really not to trust people we meet or not to depend on them. We become very dissatisfied with the world we live in. And you know what? Dissatisfaction and disgust are good things for the Christian. Because it's only when we are disgusted with the way things are, not only in our culture, in our world, in our environment in which we live, but when we get disgusted with ourselves. That is the beginning point of what it means to walk with Jesus Christ. That is what it means to walk on the pilgrim pathway on this journey to Christ and his grace. And so the question is, is are you sick and tired of the way things are? I know many of you are because I see social media posts which... uh, betray your disgust and your desire for things to be different. And so how do we find the motivation to walk on the Christian pathway? 
Well, it's obviously the Holy Spirit is the one who motivates us, and I think that you're here for a reason today. I hope it's not just habit or just because this is what you've done on every Sunday morning, but because you truly want to grow in your grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ on this thing we call this journey, this spiritual journey. As long as you think the next election, which, by the way, is coming up pretty soon, and we are already getting uh, bombarded with all of that, if you, as long as you think the next election is going to eliminate crime and make it easier to be a Christian and for churches to flourish because of that, or it's going to establish justice, or the next scientific breakthrough is going to save us, or the environment, or perhaps your next pay raise will push you over the edge from the edge of anxiety into a life of comfort, comfort and tranquility, uh, you're not likely to risk the arduous journey of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ and live the life of faith. It's only when a person is fed up with the ways of the world and the way we are as a people will we begin to acquire an appetite for the world of grace, which is surely a providential, sovereign thing of God. It's what he declares. In Psalm 120, we're not told who the writer is, the psalmist. It's an anonymous psalm. But we see just such a person here in this psalm. He is sick and tired and disgusted and in despair and distress with the way things are. And he hates the deception of the world. And he's basically, if we read this carefully and clearly, he is literally doubled up in pain over what is going on around him and to him. It's not merely an outcry. It's a lament. It's a pain that penetrates through his despair and stimulates a new beginning, a journey to God to a life of peace. Now, we have to take the Psalms of Lament, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 as a whole, as a piece. Remember, we taught last week that the pilgrims, to, uh, as they traveled up to Jerusalem from their farms and their villages and their towns throughout Israel, they were required to go up three times per year. They had to make the journey to the annual festivals, Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the summer, and the Day of Atonement in the fall. And they were required to go up there. And as they went up, remember, they walked. They didn't have air-conditioned tour buses. This was an arduous journey. Remember, Jerusalem is topographically the highest city in that part of the world. And that was the center, Zion, if if you will, of where the, the pilgrims, the faithful, would go to these annual festivals. And as they went up, they would go in as groups of family and as villages and the tribal members, and they would sing these songs as they went up to remind them, impacted them with a memory of how faithful God was. And so we begin with Psalm 120, and it's, it's just a psalm that I have never heard that is anybody's favorite. You know, really, this psalm, is a, is, it starts with, in my trouble, in my distress, and it ends with, They are for war. And in between those two descriptions are deception and slander. It is not a happy psalm. It seems strange that pilgrims going up to worship in Jerusalem would choose this as the first one they would sing. But as you look at all 15 of these psalms, you see a progression. They're progressing from the distress and the despair to the very presence of God. If I were to encapsulate all of the Psalms of Ascent here, and they will, should be listed in your Bible uh, below some title there, Psalm of Ascent or Pilgrim's Songs, something like that, or Songs of Degrees, there is a progression as they move from their current situation to the very presence of God. And to summarize it, it's about worship. 
It is about exalting God. It's about recognizing who and what he is. And each week, we will be looking at different themes. And I've listed those on the back of your bulletin insert, different themes for each week. As each psalm has a theme that we will focus on, and it is part of the progression of the Christian life. The psalms teach us. And as I said last week, all of the Bible is written for us, but not all of the Bible is written to us. And so we will see things about Israel and Jerusalem and the priests and the temple, uh, which don't apply to us, but it was important to the nation Israel. And there are principles, there are truths being taught in these, these basic themes that we can learn from. There are characteristics, I don't know if you knew this, but in Hebrew poetry, which the Psalms are, they're poetry and probably where most of them were sung, uh, but there are different types of literature even in the Psalms. We need to be aware of that. Psalm 120 is a psalm of lament, a psalm of lament. And we would rather not focus on the lament psalms, but this is what it is. And what it means, there's characteristics. It's called a type or a genre, and I've listed those on the back of that bulletin, just what each one of these psalms, what type of literature it is. But a lament is a psalmist's cry when he's in deep and great distress He has nowhere to turn but to God. We discover three types of complaints in these types of psalms. There's the psalmist may be troubled by his own thoughts, his own actions. We see that. Or he may complain about the actions of others against him, the enemies against him. And we see that in this psalm. He may be frustrated by God himself. We see that in the psalms of David specifically. Psalm 42 and 43 are examples of psalms of uh, lament in that. There are seven things associated with the lament form of psalm. And it is there's an invocation, there's a plea to God for help, there are complaints, confession, curse of the enemies, confidence in God's response, there's a hymn or a blessing. And rarely are all seven appear in these psalms of lament, but it's a type. And so we see that in this psalm. And so in Psalm 120, this psalmist, whoever it is, this anonymous person is in great distress, doubled up with pain, as I said. And so it's not a happy psalm, but it is a place of beginnings. And for each one of us, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I think you can think back. Um, You may have only been five years old or 25 years old and think back to a need that was deeply ingrained in your life. And the only answer was Jesus Christ. That is the beginning point, and we call that repentance. We call that repentance. And it's interesting as we go through this psalm, he deals with the distress in verses 1 and 2. Trouble and distresses are part of life. It has been said that you're either going into trouble, you're coming out of trouble, or you're in the midst of trouble. Uh, And so wherever you're at uh, in that, we have these nice portions of our life, and we rejoice and praise God for it, but there is always adversity in life, it seems like. So how does the psalmist deal with the distress? The first thing he starts with is in my trouble or in my distress in verse 1 of this Psalm 120. We recognize that our first step is to recognize where and what we're doing in life and how life is going. And if there is distress, how do we respond to that? He says that I called to the Lord and he answered me. That is the first response, cried to the Lord. He poured out his heart to God. And we see this throughout the Psalms of psalmists of people pouring out their heart to God. It's a good thing to do when we are in distress and difficulty. He called out and it says, he answered me. And he says, deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. He wants deliverance from the liars and deceivers around him. 
and maybe from his own deceit and his own lies. Charles Colson uh, talks about uh, a man named George O'Leary. I don't know if you remember George O'Leary. George O'Leary was a football coach, and uh, at one time he had the chance to coach his dream coaching job in football, and that was to be the head coach of Notre Dame's Fighting Iris. I don't know if you remember that story, but he signed a contract with Notre Dame, and his resume was sent to the press by someone, and the press did some uh, investigation, and they found out that there were inaccuracies about his education and college football letters. A few days later, O'Leary resigned in disgrace, a victim of his long-ago lies. And so our culture is shot through with that. There's an epidemic of lying. In recent years, politicians and pundits, professors, and even Pulitzer Prize winners have been caught dealing in deceit. One of the nation's most respected historians, Stephen Ambrose, remember him? Great author. I loved reading his stuff. But he plagiarized portions of other historians' works. And notwithstanding his public apology, he seemed hardly disturbed by the resulting controversy of his actions. A man who won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, Founding Brothers, was caught inventing a Vietnam War <clears throat> record for himself. Another one, a manager of the Toronto Blue Jays, did the same thing. So on and on it goes. And uh, the men who did the study, the, America, the day America told the truth, that es they estimate that 91% of us regularly embroider the truth. We lie and don't even think about it. And, of course, today in our day and age, in our culture, we are surrounded by that. And, uh, you know, there's no such thing as truth. It's all relative, they would say. And yet they deny the fact that there is a providential God, a sovereign God, a lawgiver God. And so politicians lying. I love the story about Will Rogers. He was a political pundit in the 1920s and 30s. Remember what he said? How do you tell if a politician's lying? If their lips are moving, they're lying. And... Uh, but I find in our day and age with technology, you know, many of them are ventriloquists. All they have to do is put an idea out there on social media and it'll spread like wildfire. One philosopher said, a lie will travel around the world two times before the truth ever starts to put its shoes on. And that's the culture we live in. And this psalmist was disgusted with this. He was dealing with great distress. In verses 3 and 4, there is a denouncing of the deception this is where God answers him. He is not directly uh, uh, addressing the liars and the deceivers around him. This is what God's answer is to that problem. This is the answer to the psalmist's lament, his cry, his prayer. And he addresses the deception in verse 3. What shall be given to you and what shall be done to you? Verse 4, you deceitful tongue. And so he's personifying this, uh, this speaking thing. And these are God's words, what he's going to do. Sharp arrows of the warrior with burning coals of the broom tree. And so the war warrior is God himself. He will deal with this. Oftentimes we think uh, you know, we have this desire for justice. And oftentimes we think we have got to push forward the justice. But God, in his providence, his sovereignty, will carry out his justice in his way. Sharp arrows, it's interesting that that is a picture of the tongue. It is like sending out arrows. And we all know we say things that we regret we've said and maybe cause harm. And they're like sharp arrows that go out. And these will turn back on the deceitfulness of the ones the psalmist is talking about. And the burning coals of the broom tree. The broom tree, the roots were used to make uh, charcoal. And they were known for their heat. They were a hardwood for heat. And that's how they tempered the metal 
and the things that they would use. And so this warrior, God himself, he is going to make all things right. He is going to do it. And he denounces the deception that is on there. Those arrows will turn back upon themselves. And so we are, as I said last week, we are in an apprenticeship. We often want our spiritual life to just go really, really fast and we'll grow so quick. But really, it's a lifelong apprenticeship. We are learning the skills of faith. We are learning the skills of walking the pilgrim pathway. We are learning about what God is doing. And sometimes it seems really slow. Sometimes it seems that we're not making any progress. Sometimes it seems, especially perhaps in loved ones and and neighbors, that we want them to grow faster and they don't. And so as disciples of Jesus Christ, as these pilgrims, as we move along, uh, God is instructing us to maturity in Jesus Christ. And then it ends in verses 5 through 7, dwelling in darkness, dwelling in darkness, We deal with the distress. God denounces the deception, but we still live in this world, don't we? And the psalmist goes on to talk about, Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshach, and I dwell with the tents of Kedar. And woe is me. Woe is an interesting term. It's not one we use very often. But you look through Scripture, and woe has two different meanings. Woe is either a a declaration of judgment by God. And by the way, beware if he says it three times, whoa, 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 in Revelation chapter 12, uh, there's severe judgment coming that God is going to make things right. But there's also this cry from people like the psalmist, woe is me, because I am undone. This is, I cannot deal with this anymore. He says, woe is me, for I am sojourning. He's traveling in Mesic. And he's dwelling in the tents of Kedar. Kedar means blackness. It means darkness. And so he's not relieved from his environment. Both of these places the psalmist mentions are names of people. They're names of people and kind of which became place names. Mesek is mentioned by the historian Herodotus, who said that in his day, the people with this name lived in a province of, of Pontus in northern Turkey. They were in northern Turkey, a long ways from Israel. And later they pushed north and east of the Black Sea and into the Ukraine. Kedar was the son of Ishmael. You can see him in Genesis 25:13, and refers to a wild uh, Arab tribe that lived in the deserts to the southeast of Israel. And they were constantly harassing the Jewish people, the Jewish population. They were located apart geographically, one way to the north, one to the southeast. Uh, but they are examples of warlike tribes and that they uh, were generally heathen is what the psalmist is talking about. They represent a strange and hostile environment or culture of which the psalmist talks about. One of the translations of this verse says, I live in the midst of hoodlums and wild savages. The world is not my home and I want out. That expresses the heart of the psalmist here. He's saying that no life, he's saying no to life associated with evil. He's basically saying and repenting, I want to live for God, for Yahweh God, the God of Israel, for the Hebrew God. That's what he's doing. Now, repentance is an interesting term, and this is what the psalmist is doing here. Uh, in the New Testament, the two Greek words that are used for repent and repentance occur some 55 times. And none of them are used in relationship to how we come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. When we believe in him for everlasting life, that is the condition for everlasting life, is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that in the Gospel of John, 
in uh, Paul, especially in Galatians, does not use that terminology in relationship to our being accepted by a righteous, holy God. Repentance, the majority of time, is directed at people who are already believers in Jesus Christ. We are called upon to repent. That means to have a change of mind, to change our direction. And this is what this psalmist is doing. He is repenting because things are so bad. He's in such great distress. He says, I don't want to be like this anymore. And he's dwelling in darkness. And so he wants to travel away and follow God. And for you and I, when we are so immersed in our culture, so immersed in what is going on in the political world, in the pop culture world, all around us, we're inundated daily with it, that we want a relief and we need to follow Jesus Christ. It's interesting, uh, the immigrant story in America. I look out and I think all of us are probably descended from immigrants at some time to this country. I know that uh, my great-grandfather immigrated from England. Uh, Excuse me, my great-great-grandfather. His name was Henry, and I have a family Bible that he had at home, and he had 11 children, and uh, nine of them died in infancy in Birmingham, England. He worked in the steel mills in Birmingham, and he got sick of it. He was disgusted with his life, and he moved to the U.S. with his two sons, And uh, they made a life for themselves here. They made the decision that we're going to do something else. We're going to do something different. And Don's grandfather, who came from Norway, he he came over here for a better life. His his first two wives died, and uh, he moved to Minnesota. And the danger was is that he couldn't grow lingonberries in Minnesota. He almost went back to Norway. So (laughs) i got to put in a Norway joke somehow here. But anyway... But the immigrant story is very interesting. It's fascinating because we all have a history in people, with people, and some are just recent, really. Maybe uh, some you know who have recently immigrated to the U.S. looking uh, for this better life. They changed their minds and changed their direction. And that's what God is calling us to do in these songs of ascent. As we move towards God, we recognize it is by his grace and his mercy And we want to follow the most compelling figure in all of history, and that is Jesus Christ. Just as the psalmist said no, he said no to this. I am done with this. I am sick of this. He says, too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. And, of course, he also lived in the midst of other Jewish people. And one commentator suggests that he wasn't so concerned about the enemies of Israel as he was about the people of his own country, of his own ethnic race, who were turning their backs on God. Warren Wiersbe makes the statement that after 50 years of pastoral ministry in various churches around the United States, that most of all the big troubles and problems were caused by people who named the name of Christ in his churches. And I have to affirm that. I have to affirm that. That it's not the enemies out there in Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles or New York. Yes, they, have, they, they affect our worldview or can affect it. But yet many of the problems we face is the fact that too long as my soul had its dwelling uh, with people who hate peace, there are some who just hate peace. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He said no to that. And he decided to travel this pilgrim pathway, not the world's way of doing things. And we have a decision that we want to go with God through life. And here are the reasons why you want to make that decision. First of all, the truth of Jesus Christ explains your life. 
One thing I'm reminded of is I have two dates in my life. One is April 29th, 1948. That's when I was born. And the next one I don't know yet, but it's coming. I'm closer to the next important date, and that's when I pass away from this world and enter the very presence of Jesus Christ. Those are the two important dates in my life. But what does it mean, this part in between? This part in between, is it just to live out my days and just enjoy the blessings we have in this country and the material blessings we have? Or is there something more about what we're doing here? The truth of Jesus Christ explains your life. The grace of Jesus Christ fulfills your life like nothing else will. That unmerited favor that Christ has given and offered to us, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ renews us each day. All of us can probably look back ashamed at some of the things we've said and done and been, and Jesus Christ takes that upon himself, and then the love of Christ blesses your life. At the end, this psalm doesn't end with this joyful victory, but the psalmist says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Isn't that the way the world goes? When you're sick and disgusted of the way things are, be careful where you flee to. I've seen too many Christians, people who supposedly name the name of Christ, get on social media and share stuff and repost stuff that is just honestly uh, not Christ-like. Would Jesus post that thing? I think of Dr. Mortimer Adler. He was an author and a, a, a professor, and he wrote a book, How to Read a Book. Isn't that funny? It's a good book, by the way. Uh, but his story told about Mortimer Adler. He was at a social group. It was a discussion group. Uh, and he got in an argument with somebody, and he got very disgusted. He got up, and he slammed the door behind him as he left the room. And one of the other people in this discussion group were trying, was trying to relieve the tension and said, well, I guess he's gone. And then the hostess replied, no, he isn't. That's a closet he went into. <laughs> Be careful where you flee to. Be very careful. We say, share the same plight when we attempt to rush from God's presence and do things our own way. We are confined to ourselves in the closet of what we have created. It's only when we are sick and disgusted with ourselves, with our environment, the way uh, that we are propelled on the life to follow Jesus Christ. A Christian is a pilgrim. You are on a journey. You are an apprentice learning the skills. We don't have all those skills all at once. I certainly don't. I'm still on this journey with you in this path uh, to know more about Jesus Christ. The Greek word tells us that we are people who are going somewhere. We talked about that last week. We are disciples, we are pilgrims, and we are going someplace. We are going to God, and the pathway for getting there is Jesus Christ. Remember, Thomas told Jesus, we don't know where you're going. Where is the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me in John 14. So this is an ongoing apprenticeship. This is not just getting head knowledge, as important as knowledge is, as important as God's word is in our heads. It should bleed out and go out through our lives in the world around us. We are pilgrims, and this ancient songbook is teaching us the way to go. Now, it's not a very happy psalm, is it? Well, you need to stick with us as we go next week in the Psalm 121 and then Psalm 122 the following week. That will help you understand why they started with repentance. The discipleship journey begins with repentance, changing our mind to change our direction.
You know, Peter reminds us, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, remember 1 Peter was written to believers in Jesus Christ in a very hostile world. And he's encouraging them and instructing them how to live in a very hostile environment. By the way, we have not experienced the hostility in this country that other believers in our current age are suffering in Iraq and Iran and mainland China and many other places around the world. So if you think it's bad now, it can get much worse, especially as Peter wrote in the first century when the Roman Empire was putting its heel on their necks. He wrote in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war in your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may be because of your good deeds as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of visitation. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that you have declared that we are strangers and aliens. You have declared that this journey is not without great hope, great endurance, and great help from the Holy Spirit and energy from you. Thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray as we travel along this thing called the Christian life, that you would be honored and glorified, that we would have endurance because of what you've done. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who has never believed in Jesus for everlasting life, that they would have their eyes open today to the fact that you are the most compelling figure in all of history. Why would I not want to follow you? Why would I not want to believe in your blessings, in your promises of everlasting life? We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.